Happy Sunday evening, everybody. Uh, tonight we were scheduled to have um, Stella Emanuel, uh, a frontline doctor. And she is unbelievably busy and being requested all over the country. And we gave her the option as we were getting ready to confirm and she was really pressed for a schedule and she was gonna keep her commitment. But we gave her the option if it's, you know, if you want, we can do it next week. And she said that would be helpful. And of course, Grace is a great word. <laughs> and so we accommodated her. And I actually had a piece about it because there's an individual that I had the privilege to meet uh, a couple years ago. And we've been staying in contact, but have never really had a chance to connect since that one event that we did in Los Angeles, where it was kind of funny. He's, he's a PhD of Near Eastern languages from uh, uh, New York University. And uh, he is a brilliant man. He's an adjunct professor at Fuller and a number of other, Gordon Conwell and a number of seminaries across the country. He's written over 25 books. And he's been so gracious to keep me updated. He, he sent me his books. I've read four of them. I've still got a stack left. Uh, I can't keep up with him intellectually. But the coolest thing about him is he, he's, he's smart as can be, but he is so precious. I mean, he's it, just relatable, takes, again, complex thoughts and makes them simple, which endears me to him because that's how I learn. You got to put the cookies at the bottom shelf. But what's fascinating, he's, I think he was born in 1955, so he's nine years older than I am. He looks great, looks younger than me. Uh, but he went at 16 years of age from being a heroin-using, LSD-dropping drummer in a Jewish rock band <laughs> to becoming a, a doctor, a PhD of Near Eastern languages. Just, I don't know how to process that. <laughs> and when, when you get a chance tonight to, to see this, this man, you will be as blessed as I have been. And our commitment to each other is we're gonna really develop our friendship and we're looking forward to doing much more in the future together. He is nationally renowned. He speaks all over the country and world. Um, and I, I, I think that's a pretty good introduction. Amen. I, yeah. I wanna quit talking because I wanna get to the good stuff. Mm -hmm. Would you please welcome my dear friend, Dr. Michael Brown. Hello, sir. Hey, great to be with you. What a joy. Yeah, yeah. I, want, I wish you were in person, but you're over in North Carolina, and you were gracious. I called you after I, I told you with Stella Manuel. I, I kind of sensed the Lord want to give her a break, and I had a peace because I was looking at the book you sent me, and I, bet, I said, you know, Lord, I think this guy, I think he'd, he'd be willing. And I called you, and lo and behold, you're free. That's how the Lord works, and uh, here you are, and I'm blessed. I'm blessed to be with you. And listen, when we met under some very unusual circumstances <laughs> where some dear folks yeah. were putting together meetings and uh, on very important cultural war issues and things that, that we've both addressed, but we didn't know each other at that point. Uh, there were just some glitches in the way the event was organized and put on despite tremendous efforts by the people involved. And basically nobody was there for the event. We had, we had more speakers than we had people attending. Uh, so we thought, well, God brought us together for some reason. Yeah. And you and I, there are a couple other people said, I think we're supposed to meet and get to know each other. So I've, mm -hmm. I've had that in the back of my mind ever since. Me too. So, yeah. And, and then when I saw you, uh, we were in touch a little bit over the years. Uh, but then when I saw you, uh, you know, in the news nationally, in terms of uh, doing what you felt was right in California with your church and things, I thought, that's my man. <laughs> and, uh, we've connected all the more since. Amen. Well, I, I, the, the one question I want to just come out of the shoot with is, 
how do you go from a 16-year-old heroin-using, LSD-dropping <laughs> uh, drummer in a Jewish rock band to being a PhD of Near Eastern languages? Just walk me through that process. Cause, <laughs> well, there's actually a funny process to it. First, it's the mercy and grace and goodness of God. And Amen. By the way, the other two band members were, were Gentiles. So I was, I'm Jewish, but the band, so it wasn't a Jewish rock Man, but Jewish drummer. So I wasn't just a heavy drug user. I, I was known as drug bear and iron man in my high school because somehow the way my body was wired, I could take massive drugs. And so that, you know, in the foolish teen years, that was something to boast about. That was part of my identity. And then my two best friends, like these two girls and the girls were, their dad was praying for them. He was a believer. Uh, they weren't saved. They started to go to this little gospel preaching church. My friends went, to hang out with the girls, God started to work in their hearts. So I went to pull them out in August of 71. And as I said, I wasn't just a heavy drug user. I was a wicked, rebellious, nasty, yeah. proud kid. And uh, when, I, when I went to this little church, Italian Pentecostal church, maybe 40, 50 people there, and almost, you know, all to me old, and they were very gracious, nice to me. And I thought, well, whatever, you know. Just you do what you want to do. I'll do what I want to do. But they started praying for me. And the Holy Spirit started bringing me under conviction. And by November of 71, I, I realized I believed Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead, but I wasn't willing to change. And then December, just encountering the love and goodness of God in this little church. Remember, I, I was playing drums in a rock band and saw Jimi Hendrix in concert when I was 13 Saw him, Janis Joplin, The Doors, The Who, The Grateful Dead, you know, all the Zeppelin, all the bands of that day. That's what I lived for. Now I'm in this little church where the pastor's wife is playing piano, these old little ditty hymns, you know, when we all get to heaven, there's within my heart a melody, <laughs> softly and tenderly. I, I get flooded with the joy of the Lord, which gave me a revelation of the depth of God's love, mm. which gave me a revelation of the depth of my sin. And right then I said, God, I'll never put a needle in my arm again. And was free from that night on, December 17th of 71. Jeez. And then when my dad saw that I was serious and that my life was changed, because he knew I was doing drugs, didn't know how bad it was, but he was deeply concerned. Then he saw I was changed. He said, well, Michael, we're Jews. We don't believe in this. We need to talk to the local rabbi. It's good you're off drugs, but we don't believe in this. So he introduced me to the local rabbi, with whom I'm still in contact uh, occasionally now, uh, 50 years later. He and I began to talk, and he began to challenge me. You don't even know Hebrew. How can you tell us what to believe? And the more rabbis I would talk to, the same challenge. You're just relying on this English translation. How can you tell us what to believe? And when I started college, I thought, you know, I really need to learn Hebrew. And that led to me majoring in Hebrew in college and then getting a doctorate in Semitic languages. But what, what happened was it, this was all part of my desire for truth. You know, I, I, I was determined to follow the truth of Scripture wherever it led. And as a Jew, I wanted to be obedient to God, whatever that meant. And I didn't want to have to rely just on what other people said. I wanted to be able to read and study and evaluate for myself. And that's, that's part of how I got on that, that journey. So it's, it's an interesting story. But again, it's all God's mercy and amazing grace. But even though you were a heroin user, LSD user, uh, in copious amounts, were you a good student in high school to be able to get into New York University? Oh, no, no, no. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. And NYU was after college. So I, I, got seri I got more serious in college. But here's what happened. Shortly before I came to faith, we went on strike in our high school. 
Remember, this is late 60s, early right. 70s, and that's what you did in those days, just like you got the rioting and the protesting. So we, we went on strikes, you know, college campuses. Well, we went on strike at our high school. I was one of the ringleaders. And the principal of the school gathered the whole student body together, about 1,200 students, and said, okay, there's some students very upset with our system here of education, how we do things. Put all your demands together, lay them out, circulate them through the whole school, do it by tomorrow, and we'll, we'll accommodate you knowing there was no way we could do it. Well, somehow we managed to pull it off. We had some other teachers that were in our camp. One of them apparently had some lawsuits against the school that he used as leverage if he didn't get his way. And they gave us our own school within the school called Safe School, which stood for student and faculty education because it would be a learning experience for everyone involved. I kid you not. So this was my junior and senior year of high school. Safe School started at the same time in the morning that the rest of the school did. But we got out at noon. The rest of the school got out at three. We had no formal (laughs) classes required and no formal grades. You could simply request a passing grade and get a passing grade. One of the teachers, we were given four teachers, pretty radical, to to lead the school. We had about 60 students. We were given four rooms in the, the end of one of the buildings. So all the school windows, all clean, ours covered with graffiti. This actually happened. And, and the positive for me was a couple months into this, I got saved. So I had a light high school schedule. And once I started to get really hungry for God, by the time I was saved a year, I spent at least six or seven hours alone with the Lord every day. I prayed at least three hours. Mm. I read the word two hours and I memorized scripture an hour a day. And my mind, which had been so fried from drugs, now I, I can memorize 20 verses a day. Did that without missing a beat for six months. So I, and every day I'd go to school instead of getting high like I used to. We'd go to school, get high, and maybe attend a class, maybe not. Instead, I'd just go share the gospel. So I got to share the gospel day and night with kids in the school, and, and many of them seeking and open. It was an amazing opportunity. But I had no formal grades aside from band and orchestra the last two years of, of high school, seriously. So I had to start with a community college, Queensborough Community College. I started as a music major and then transferred over to Queens College uh, based on my grades in community college. And then from Queens College, I went to NYU. Wow. Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you you didn't know this, but my son-in-law to my left, uh, through his mother's lineage, he has the right of return. He's he's Jewish. Really? Neat. But he's he's Messianic Jew like you. Yeah. And he had to go to high school all day long. He didn't get off at noontime. That's why I'm not as smart as you. It's the only reason. <laughs> uh, for everyone tuning in, uh, Dutch is here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so Michael, I, I've been looking and, and observing your videos, and uh, and and there's there's so much good stuff, and and I, I don't know if I want to jump right into this, but David and I were talking about your video, and I might as well just go right to it. With, with Andy Stanley, because you brought up that here I am in California, you were tracking what we're doing, but in addition, so is John MacArthur, and, and he's facing struggle because he's in L.A. County, which is just a stone's throw from us. They've taken his parking lot. He still hasn't put a, they haven't put a restraining order on him. They're going to do that, I, I believe. We have a court date set for the end of September, so we're a little further in the process of judgment. Um, we're in violation of a restraining order. And you've got Jack Hibbs open and the C3 churches and a number of others that are opening. 
but I, I was looking at Liberty University, the convocation, Andy Stanley spoke, and he, he kind of, it, it appeared to me, made fun of John MacArthur and kind of took a shot at him. And in, 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 I would say not knowing, he doesn't know me from Adam, but in taking a shot at John MacArthur, he took a shot at us like we're in violation of God by being open. What, with your conversation with Andy Stanley and what you know and the friendship you've developed, can you add any insight to that? Calm it down a little bit? Bring some clarity? Sure. Well, I, I was unaware of his comments at convocation. Our, our oldest granddaughter is at Liberty and absolutely loving it there. She's in her sophomore year now. So I'll actually have to go and, and, and look at his comments. Uh, on a personal level, Andy's been a prince of a guy. Uh, when I've differed with him openly, he's he said, hey, just if you just send me stuff so I can know what you're saying, you know, if you have an issue, let me know personally. Uh, been been open, uh, gracious. He's the one that reached out to me and said, hey, why don't I just come on your radio show to talk about this whole irresistible thing where he had made unfortunate comment about getting unhitched from the Old Testament, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, so just on that level, he's he's been a super guy and you know, totally open and, and approachable. Uh, so I commend him. I commend him for that. And whatever decision he made in, a, in his own congregation, I, I do remember when he was on the air, he said the only numerical goal that his church had was to have 100,000 people being discipled in house groups. That was the one numerical goal that they had and that their public gatherings were, I think, more evangelistic in, in nature especially for younger people. But in, in any case, uh, I, I've urged every pastor and leader to hear from God on your own and to be honoring of those who have different positions. The, the two things that I've said is in terms of what to avoid is one, we cannot cower in fear that that's essential. And the other, that we cannot cultivate a spirit of rebellion. Rather, we cultivate a spirit of obedience to the highest authority. So when the lower authorities tell us to disobey our conscience or to disobey scripture, we say, with all respect, we will obey God. So those are the two things that I've mentioned and then urged everyone to hear God and and to do what you feel is right. So whatever motivated Andy to cancel public gatherings the rest of the year, I mean, that's that's between him and God and 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 his leadership team to do what they feel is is the right thing to do. I'm not going to say it's fear based or wimping out because I don't know what motivated him. At the same time, uh, I've, I've openly commended people like you and Pastor MacArthur because of the unequal treatment of things in California, because of Gavin Newsom saying you can go out and protest, but you can't gather and sing in a church building. You can go out and protest, but you can't have a Bible study in your home. It's completely outrageous. So, I, I again, I have to find out exactly what he said. And... If, no. if it does trouble me, I'll absolutely reach out to him. Yeah, and well, and I, I love your approach because I've, I've often said and continue to say that people aren't the enemy, they're the opportunity. But in the same regard, as shepherds were held to a higher standard, and as, as I've made mistakes, you've made mistakes, Andy has made mistakes, but, but I love the, the dialogue that you have and that you have reached out to work through that. Now, I'll just say for all who are viewing tonight, the last person I would want to debate and contend with is you. I've seen you debate. You're vicious in a sweet way. 
You just you just vicious disarm people. Way. I like that. <laughs> you're, you're vicious in a sweet way. You disarm people, and then you just smother them with facts. Yeah. And your grasp of the topic is is hard to contend with. So, um, I imagine that you you are doing your best to enlighten him, and and I love the fact that you're a bridge builder. I mean, you're in reality you're a messianic Jew. You're considered by some in the Southern Poverty Law Center and others to be anti-Semitic, which couldn't be any further from the truth. Um, I, I just read some of these things, and, and it, it baffles me that people can put that in writing. Um, and I you're think, not- you know, the SPLC went after me years ago um, as allegedly anti-gay, which then became anti-LGBTQ. So I was, I got on their hate list. I was one of the uh, 30, thirty new yeah. leaders of the of the radical right. And uh, so first, I, I it, it actually made my night when a friend asked me about it. I had just had this tremendous sense of joy and affirmation from the Lord, knowing it was opposition for righteousness sake. And then I called them on the carpet publicly for, uh, in terms of truth and, you know, never got a response from them, even reaching out to them privately. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, look, they, they continue to discredit themselves, the SPLC. Yeah. Uh, they've, you know, they branded the ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, which has won numerous Supreme Court cases as one of the most respected legal organizations in America. They branded them a, a hate group and, and others, and they've shown, you know, very clear double standards, et cetera. But, you know, with the thing with Andy that I appreciate is, uh, you know, he wrote the, the book Irresistible that I really took issue with. And where we left things was, okay, I'll write a book called Why Andy Stanley's Irresistible needs to be resisted. And then we can dialogue about it. He's, I mean, he doesn't get offended by that. Uh, I was at a conference in California uh, and we were dealing with culture wars and, and homosexual issues, etc. And the convener of the conference, a well-known theologian said, you know, Andy Stanley accepts same-sex marriage in his church. Uh, so I texted him and he said, well, I don't, could you correct it? And I said, absolutely. And then I got on radio next, uh, as soon as I was back on live radio, and shouted it out to the whole nation. I thought if he wants to correct it, I'll, I'll shout it out loudly. No, he does not believe in same-sex, quote, marriage. But there was a gentleman that reached out to me, Messianic Jewish pastor, that had uh, really looked to Andy Stanley a lot, was very upset with his Irresistible book, and said, I'm going to be having lunch in, uh, in Atlanta. Could you try to connect me to Andy? I reached out to Andy. He said, yeah, give him my cell phone. I'd love to meet with him. They spent several hours together over lunch. And I believe Andy's been in steady connection with this gentleman afterwards. So while we can have our differences uh, and, and sometimes very, very strong differences to the point of, of warning other leaders and saying you're in serious error or, or this is a destructive path, there's a way we can do it that we can hopefully model for others. And, and that's one of my big issues. OK, well, let's sit down and talk. You're attacking me and telling me I'm this error. And let's sit down and talk. I mean, people won't do that. That's the bigger issue to me. The fact they attacked me is not the, the biggest thing. The fact they won't sit and talk and, and dialogue and get to the truth, that to me is the real defect. Let's, yeah. let's, uh, let's transition, especially with the current political climate, Black Lives Matter, the Marxist movement. This hasn't always been your wheelhouse, but you've never been afraid of topics like this. Uh, how have you processed it? What have been some of your programs what, what are some of the issues that, you know, like Pastor John MacArthur never wanted to get into the political world, but the political world seems to have gotten into the church. And now, obviously, this is a man for many years avoided that as much as he could. And here he is taking a frontline stand almost in antithesis of where he was previous. 
but it's, it's like Pastor John to be bold and to make a stand, and I'm grateful for it. Um, it I, I would almost look at you the same way that you, you haven't avoided tough topics, but you've stayed more in the theological realm, but here we are as a nation uh, really grappling with a division not, not unlike probably what you experienced in your high school with the safe space or the safe classes. Here we are in 2020. It's almost identical in many respects. And now you're a believer and you're a, a theologian, you're a PhD. How are you processing all that's going on in the nation right now? Yeah, so uh, number one, I'm, I'm deeply, deeply concerned about the state of the nation. We had a radical shift in the 60s, the counterculture revolution. And if not for the Jesus Revolution, where that in which God saved in the early 70s, uh, I would have been a, a product for the worst of the counterculture revolution of the 60s. A psychologist, David Myers, pointed out in, in the year 2000, if you fell asleep in 1960 and woke up in the year 2000, you'd wake up with the divorce rate doubled, teen suicide tripled, reported violent crime up four times, prison population up five times, children born out of wedlock up six times, people living together out of wedlock up seven times. You'd wake up to a, a radically different culture. You'd wake up to a culture in which the radicals of, of the 60s, like Bill Ayers and the Weathermen, were now university professors and, and, and mentoring future presidents like Barack Obama. So you have dramatic shift in culture. And I see things now with mobocracy and the cancel culture and, and the move towards socialism. And to me, it's not so much socialism versus capitalism, but socialism seeking to shut down the gospel. As I see this shift, to me, it feels like we're right at the edge of a cliff. In other words, if the church does not respond properly now, we go over the edge. Yeah. And four, four more years of Donald Trump is not going to save America. At best, that's a wedge in the door where the church can really cry out to God, truly repent, truly engage in the gospel and, and uh, usher in revival and awakening, because that's, that's the hope of the nation. So that's the first thing. The second thing, in terms of my own burden— in, in the late, for, for, for many years, the great passion of my heart was revival, renewal. So all the academic stuff, that's just a tool in service of, of the things God's called me to do. But I had this overwhelming burden for revival in the church. And then God called me to be part of a major revival uh, from 96 to 2000, touch people from around the world, message of repentance, holiness, turning to God. I saw the power of what God could do. I saw the realization of things I, I dreamed about and prayed for and fasted for for years. And it, it, as that began to grow in the late 90s, the theme of, of revolution began to grow in my heart. I saw that more of the same would only produce more of the same, that there had to be radical change within the church. I mean, you know, Church of America is basically like a spectator sport. People show up. And, and they enjoy the singing and the, and, and the preaching and give a little money and go home and live their lives. So the, the emphasis is put on going to church instead of being the church, being God's people in the society. And we need radical change in our midst to see radical change in society. I, I also saw that there had to be a, a holy revolution, a, a God-based, spirit-empowered Jesus revolution to turn the tide. Otherwise, we keep going off the edge. And that's when the theme of Jesus revolution began to grow in me, that the Great Commission is Jesus basically saying, let's go change the world together. And, and that the calling of Jesus is revolutionary. Leave everything, follow me, give your life for the cause. That began to grow in me. And then in 2004, 
quite out of the blue, shortly after we had moved to North Carolina, God began to deeply burden me about homosexual activism. And immediately I saw, when I read what had been written already, immediately I saw that this was the greatest threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience in America. And that this would be the great moral, spiritual question of this generation. So God began to burden me then with a message that those who came out of the closet wanted to put us in the closet. And after I got concerned about the issues, God started to break my heart for the people and, and spoke to me in early 2005, reach out and resist, reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. So that's why, especially I've been vilified, hated by these different groups, HRC and, and GLAD and, and SPLC, because of the stance we've taken here. I've said we need hearts of compassion with backbones of steel. And the moment you address these issues, you get hated from every quarter. But obviously, we can see what's happened to society and the reality of those who came out of the closet want to put us in the closet. Let so me, oh. when I, I uh, so one other angle now, I've, I've got a dear friend, a black brother, actually a black Jewish brother, who is a historian, uh, a teacher, and is constantly sending me things about civil rights issues, race issues in America, filling in blind spots that I have, and then doing talk radio daily for 12 years now. I've got endless calls from black listeners, black viewers who love my show, who respect me and honor me, but who share their life experience, which has been very different than mine, having never been racially profiled in my life. So when the, when the BLM thing started back in 2016, I wrote an article saying we must separate the BLM movement from real civil rights issues. We must separate BLM movement from saying that Black Lives Matter. You say, well, why do we even need to say Black Lives Matter? Because in much of American history to this day, many Black Americans feel their lives haven't mattered. So I said, let's shout it from the rooftop. Yes, Black Lives Matter, but the BLM movement, we separate ourselves from. Now that this has grown into a national phenomenon, we've opened it up even more. I don't even refer to them as the Black Lives Matter movement. I just call them BLM. I'm not even going to dignify the sentence Black Lives Matter with their movement. Uh, when you go to the website, of course, you notice that the three founders are all radical feminists, uh, admittedly trained Marxists. Two of them openly identify as queer. Uh, all of your viewers know by now that they've openly said we want to disrupt the Western nuclear family. When I dug into the statement even further, I noticed strikingly that the word father never occurred once. Mothers are mentioned, mm. parents are mentioned, but father never once. And then, more recently, it surfaced that uh, some of the leaders in the movement talk about calling on spirits of the dead when they say, say his name, you know, say George Floyd or, or, or say this name. When, when you say the name, you're, you're also calling on the person to come forth for those spirits to come forth and empower the movement. So it's basically witchcraft. And you think this whole thing is very Jezebelic in that regard in terms of joining together radical feminism, uh, attack on gender, attack on family structure, emasculating men, and then you bring in the appeal to the spirits of the dead. So I have been warning people for months, separate from the movement. It is anarchist. It is antichrist. Do not get, show, show your solidarity with black friends in different ways where you see injustice confronted, but separate from the movement. And we began to warn about this. Not long after that, they started burning Bibles in Portland. And I tweeted, okay, not what's next, but who's next. 
Sure enough, next weekend, they tried to burn police alive in the police precinct. So we need to expose this for what it is. It's from below, not from above. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pose this to you. Uh, and and you're, you're outstanding in dissecting it. And you can, you can dismantle it, take it apart, do as you please. But I'm, I'm going to present another angle on what you just described. Because you spoke of the Jesus movement. You spoke of the 60s revival. And, and America needs that. Uh, Calvary chapels, as you know, were part of the Jesus movement. Chuck Smith looked out at a sea of humanity of, of all the burned out hippies who much like you in your youth had experimented with drugs and psychedelic drugs and heroin and Eastern religions. And in 68, when Chuck started the Calvary Chapel movement in California, Ronald Reagan was governor. We had the fifth largest GDP. I was born here in 64. My father was born here, grandfather. It was the state of the future. It was a great place to own a business, great place to raise a family. And Reagan's governor, it's very conservative. And in 1968, Bobby Kennedy Jr. was, or Bobby Kennedy, excuse me, not Jr., Bobby Kennedy was shot. He was assassinated by Sirhan Sirhan. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was killed yep. uh, on a balcony of a motel in Memphis, Tennessee. 63, John F. Kennedy was shot. You had the My Lai Massacre, the Tet Offensive, and then you'd have the Kent State shooting in 69. And all these young people were just completely disillusioned with politics because they had invested in these really amazing forward thinking. I mean, today, John F. Kennedy would be considered very conservative. Right. And, and he wasn't a traditional... Well, I, my point is this. Chuck Smith and Kay Smith look out at the sea of humanity and they begin the simple application of teaching the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And then they bring in Maranatha music with syncopated rhythms and electric guitars and, and it takes off. And you have Costa Mesa, one of the first mega churches. And from 68 to 2020, it's a 52 year span of our, our life existence of Calvary Chapel. We've experienced 10,000% growth there's now 1,800 Calvary chapels around the world. Mm. South of Van Nuys, right here in California, there's 350 Calvary chapels. It's a, it's a Calvary chapel sandbox. The, the, the ten, probably many of the 10 largest churches in California are, are Calvary chapels, and, and some of the largest churches in America are Calvary chapels. But we have, we've been apolitical. The only, the only president that Chuck Smith ever endorsed was Jimmy Carter because he said he was born again. So 52 years of preaching the gospel, that's conversion growth, not transfer growth. Uh, people being delivered from drugs. I can go on and on about amazing stories in the movement of God's spirit. And it was charismatic because we were still a, aligned with the vineyard and you still had Lonnie Frisbee and people were speaking in tongues, which is, you know, in your wheelhouse. But here we are 52 years into this movement. And let's look at the byproduct of how this has changed the culture in California by being apolitical. We no longer have the fifth largest GDP. We have the sixth, maybe seventh. We have the highest gas tax, sales tax, income tax, corporate tax. We lead the nation in debt. We have the highest poverty, highest homelessness. We're the authors of no-fault divorce that decimated marriage across the country and, and fatherless families. 
We are the authors of transgender bathroom bills, the most secularly progressive sex ed curriculum in the world. And here's the kicker. We've aborted more babies in California than the entire population of Canada. So how did that revival change California? So here's, here's to me, the big, big factor, and it's so important you're raising this, and has to do with theology as well. So I got saved in 71, and in, I was just checking to be sure I had the date right, how Lindsay's late great planet Earth came out in 1970. So we knew, prophetically, everything was lining up, and Jesus was coming at any moment. And with all respect to Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel and, and the good that, that they've done and, and continue to do, pre-trib teaching, any moment rapture, was a major theme. And uh, that's, that's the, what was in the air when I got saved. The idea that I'd be 65 years old, that my wife and I would be going on, well, just past 44 years of marriage, that we'd have a 19-year-old grandchild in college. I was thinking of that because Jesus is coming any moment. I honestly remember that uh, I was taught when Jesus comes, he's going to rapture the church and he's going to take the Holy Spirit from the earth. So if you miss the rapture, if you happen to sin at that split second when the rapture happened, then you get left behind. And then I deduced from that, well, that would mean the Holy Spirit was taken and that would mean that I couldn't speak in tongues. So let's say I, I blew it, you know, I thought some wrong, some, you know, 16-year-old, 17-year-old kid, I thought some lustful thought and said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'd immediately speak in tongues to make sure I didn't miss the rapture. I remember showing up one Sunday for a church service and it was, you know, when your clock has moved ahead or back one hour and I forgot to do it. And I showed up for Sunday school on a Sunday morning and nobody was there. And I thought, oh, no, I missed the rapture. <laughs> so it, it was inevitable. The theology was it's all going down and there's nothing you can do about it. I still hear that from people all the time. Well, I'll get on the radio and I'll talk about the latest crazy thing happening with some sex ed curriculum, like you mentioned, or some transgender bill or something. It's like. Yeah, this is it. Jesus coming any minute. It's like, okay, listen, let us all be ready to meet the Lord because we don't know, we can't guarantee our next breath. Let's all live in readiness to meet the Lord. But this idea that things are just going down and that we're of another kingdom that really doesn't intersect with this kingdom, we abdicate it. And, and, and you go back and read the goals of gay activists in the late 60s, and in their minds, they're fighting for freedom, equality. They want their relationships to be the same as everybody else. Why should there be discrimination against them? You look at radical feminists with their goals, all these others with, with their particular goals, and, and we basically abdicate it. And, and if, if we can just say, okay, let's not even think politics. Should we, should change believers have a moral impact on the world around us? You ask the, the obvious always question, should we have done something about slavery in the days of slavery? How do we look back at, at Christians, not, not just those that had slaves, but those who felt it was wrong and didn't do anything? We, we, we say that's, that's impossibly wrong. How could that possibly be wrong? Okay, so we're not supposed to do anything now about the slaughter of the unborn? Yeah. We're not supposed to do stuff that's, that's affecting our kids in schools? Where the, you know, and you just go down the list. So sometimes, you know, politics can be dirty, Politics can just be, you know, uh, nasty ads and, and you know, you got to play by the, you know, this, the, the whole swamp and the, all that. Junk. Okay, put all that aside. Are we as believers to live different lives than the rest of the world and to be a positive moral and cultural influence? 
in, in, in Martin Luther King's famous words, the church must be reminded it's not the master or the servant of the state, but the conscience of the state. Amen. So even if we just spoke out on issues all the time, even if we raised our voices and got active when it came to abortion, even if we, we got involved with our local schools and began to speak up, even if we began to say, hey, our colleges are just being taken over by radical liberals who, who hate a lot of things we stand for. Why don't we get involved in, in the colleges? Why, you know, hey, why don't we run for, if, if you're a lawyer, why don't you become a judge? And so we, we just abdicated to a great extent. Yep. And, and the counterculture revolution of the 60s was the proof this is the final apostasy. I remember hearing it. I remember hearing it taught. Yeah. So it's like, we're out of here any moment. And we abdicated, and we're paying the price for it today. It's, it's a little late to be catching up, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to bring you, because you touched on it, and I, thank you for elaborating. And, and we're, we're very similar in our understanding of it. I actually wrote this to somebody today. And, of course, Calvary chapels are pre-trib, pre-millennial. And uh, I teach eschatology when I get to the books. Um, but I do, I do struggle because every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability, and the liability for pre-trib, pre-millennial is apathy and, and self-fulfilling prophecy. And we haven't done anything for generations to come by planting trees of whose shade we'll never know because we're polishing brass on the Titanic. And I, and I wrote this to someone who gives me the same response, why bother? Mm -hmm. This is proof that the end is near. And I said, seriously though, all Hal Lindsey ever did was sell books. The late great planet Earth, he didn't do squat to further the kingdom. He scared a ton of people into raising their hand to get their get out of hell free card. And those same people are the superficial pew potatoes that roll over and let Governor Newsom scare them into a worthless vaccine. The eschatology that I see is, when I read Revelation, is we win... The devil loses. Now let's get back to work. And, and my, my point is that I want to make, and I want you to elaborate on this, and I think this is where we diverge a little bit. Uh, and, and you've written copious volumes, and, and you could tear me apart, no doubt. But this is experiential for me. When we abdicated our responsibility in the public square, whether it was our eschatology or whatever it was, when we abdicated our responsibility in the public square to engage the culture and, and simply saying politics is dirty and I don't want to be a part of it and the church, I just preach the gospel. I, I, I watched something happen. In, in that picture I gave you of a 52-year decline of California, where, where we're, more people have left this state than came here during the Dust Bowl. And this was, this was the epicenter of evangelism. And our state is de just devastated right now. It's a mess. And they're, they're shuttering churches and censoring what we say. And yet, this is where Focus on the Family came from. This is where, you know, Campus Crusade came from. Bill Bright and D James Dobson and the Calvary Movement and the Vineyard Movement. We can go on and on. But here's my struggle. Because we abdicated our participation in the culture and stayed within the walls of the church and the decline of the family unit, and we didn't defend that, and we allowed public education to take a course and we never participated, and we surrendered our children to public education, and we embraced divorce 
as a governor would promote it and devastate marriage across the country and then families are dissolved and struggling and you give this depiction of waking up in 2000 as opposed to 1969 and you gave the social barometers, every social pathology is listed there. The, this is the kicker, this is where we diverge. The, the gay and lesbian movement moving towards Marxism and participating with BLM, I think that's our fault, and I'll tell you why. These are disenfranchised human beings raised in a single-parent family or a culture that is driven by sexual deviance, and any political structure for them to participate, they're not permitted in the church and, and understandably that, that you can't hold a leadership position, you can't do this. And the only thing that the church does politically is to define what they don't do. And, and uh, are, you, are you opposed to abortion? You aren't, then you're, you're not in. And, and here's my point. We have relegated these human beings that struggle with their sexual identity that they can only embrace the leftist theology and a leftist, a leftist ideology. And the minute the conservative movement tries to bring them in under Galatians 3 that the law is a school teacher, a guardian, to keep us safe and point us to Christ until faith comes, that there's laws of nature and nature's God. And what I've found, being political, and I've run four times for office, one, three, and I got the endorsement of the log cabin Republicans and Richard Grinnell, who was part of Trump's cabinet. And it defended me and my position on traditional marriage at the log cabin Republican event, whose family is evangelical. But his, his heart is conservative. And, and when I work with Charlie Kirk at Turning Point USA, it's a secular organization, but they come in and they start to realize these principles work what our founders established, the laws of nature, nature's God, and start to point them in this direction. And now they want to know the source. But because we haven't engaged in the political sector, we've relegated this entire realm of humanity that struggles with sexual identity only to a leftist agenda. When in reality, we're watching not only Blexit, blacks exiting the Democratic Party, we're watching the gay and lesbian movement move into the conservative realm and you say, oh, they're going to poison it. They're asking the same questions as they're going in this laws of nature and nature's God. And, and, and Charlie never compromises his position on marriage or Christ, but he's engaging with all of them in the political world because politics is done by addition and multiplication, not by division and subtraction. And as you start to establish these principles, they want it just as much as anyone else does. They're human beings. And at the end of the day, you, you want a society that, that works. So because of our ignorance in the political world and that we've abdicated that and say that's not what the church does, we've created the monster and we decry its, ex its existence. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, well, first, I'm, I'm not exactly sure where we diverge here. I'm, I'm happy to say if we do. Okay. But one of the major points I made was that the, in writing and t talking about revolutionary concepts was that the, the 60s were a time of tremendous spiritual seeking that beneath the sex, drugs, rock and roll, Eastern religion, 
uh, young people were, were looking for God, looking for truth. You know, we'd sit around and get high and talk about spiritual things. It was just in the air. Uh, but much of the church didn't recognize what was happening because of the way things were packaged. And the enemy really hijacked that moment with, with carnal pursuits because young Americans were very confused. You know, the, the fear of the Vietnam War, the, the unsettledness, as you mentioned, with the Kennedy assassination in 63 and then, and then King and Kennedy in 68, and so much upheaval all around the world that was massive. It was, it was an incredible harvest time. That's why the Calvary chapels grew and folks that, that saw what was happening and recognized that these young people needed spiritual fathers. That was, that was a key element back then. And I've been saying for many, many years that as those who identify as LGBTQ coming to our churches, uh, the packaging is not going to be what we're used to. And we've got to be ready to love and, and, and open doors and open hearts and, and bring people into, into God's uh, transformational presence. Again, the word that God gave me was reach out and resist, reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. So we're constantly working with people that are struggling, people that have questions, uh, working with those in, in the ex-gay movement to help them with their rights. The problem is, though, Rob, that an aggressive agenda came knocking at our door. In, in, in other words, this was not a battle that any of us asked to get into. But an aggressive agenda came knocking at our door, the doors of our kids, you know, what do you do when your kindergarten kid comes home and, and, and is crying because of the, they're confused about the book with, you know, Prince and Prince, where the two princes kiss at the end of the book? You know, what, what do you do when you're teaching preschool and you're not allowed to say boys and girls because that's making gender distinction? You have this, to say friends. This would, be the, this would be where we would diverge. I, I don't think it was an aggressive agenda. I think it was the absence of Christians on a school board contending for truth. They didn't participate. Well, if you got to back it up, though, what you have to do is back up to the 60s. It was quite an aggressive agenda. And, and you know, we know where things formed, where they came from ideologically. Yes, if the church had done a better job of showing compassion, if the church had done a better job of being involved in, in, in the culture, we wouldn't have these things happening. Yeah, but all I'm saying is, just like with, with abortion, when, when you see the staggering magnitude of that, and, and, you know, to paraphrase Francis Schaeffer, you know, every abortion clinic should have a sign saying open with permission of the local church, that uh, it is something we're going to push back against while making constantly clear our care for all involved, our care for the mothers, our desire to show them a better way. But again, it's our, our abdication that created the void. And there's, there's no reason why our universities are not filled with godly professors, why our, our church, uh, where our school districts are, are not led by godly administrators and supervisors and things like that, and why there are not many more godly people serving in every aspect of politics from the local school board and city council to the, to the president of the United States. You, so again, it, you, can, you can speak to this because you are academia. You're a Ph.D., you're a rarity in the charismatic movement. And I'll give you an example of what I've witnessed recently. Uh, um, Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, witnessed his father's assassination when he was 14, his uncle when he was nine. Mm. He is a Harvard-trained, and I think Georgetown, Georgetown-trained attorney, and highly gifted and capable and works for a large firm. And he used to do op-eds in the New York Times all the time. Highly sought after, highly educated, unbelievably articulate, and a great attorney. And he took on big oil, and everyone loved him. But when he took on big pharma, 
he was completely censored to the point where they're, the, even his family and, and, and the democratic realm doesn't know what to do with him because it's driven by money. Mm. And he's speaking at an evangelical church and the pastor opens up by quoting the mark of the beast. That this vaccine, you're going to get in, injected with the mark of the beast and it ushers in the end times. And I'm listening to this and I get it because I'm Calvary Chapel. But I'm looking at a man who came from a family with 12 kids or he was one of 12 or 12 siblings. I can't remember if he's 13 or 12. And he's got eight of his own kids and they're all highly educated and they're contending and getting the highest level of degree and they're fighting big pharma. And the only thing that we can discuss as pastors is, is this the mark of the beast? And you have a Catholic who's contending to stop this technology from infringing on personal freedoms and personal rights, but none of our children have been educated at that level to contend at that level. Hmm. All we can talk about is this is the mark of the beast. And, and we need more PhDs from the body of Christ to drive the narrative because we're losing the freedom of speech. We don't have big ideas. We don't formulate government. You look at the founders and these, these, these men were brilliant. I, I have the Virginia statute on religious freedom that I'm going to be teaching next Sunday. And Thomas Jefferson said, if, if he's ever to be remembered in death of any tombstone or monument erected in his name, the only three things he wants mentioned in his life is the signer of the Declaration of Independence, the founding of the University of Virginia, and the Virginia statute of religious freedom because it was the, 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 the seminal work of his life that gave us what you and I are enjoying right now and the diversity of religion in this nation and a nation contending that these rights come from God, not from man and how critical religion is to a constitutional republic, but it's completely lost in the pulpits of America today. No big thinkers, no big ideas. And we're watching the entire culture implode around us because there's not men like you who have done the hard work and I'm one of them. I, I don't have a master's. I don't even have a doctorate. I'm trying to become autodidactic and read my, wa- my way into somewhere. Maybe somebody will give me an honorary degree, but I doubt that because I'm too stupid. <laughs> but that's, that's my... Know, look, the, the, it, to me, there has to be a holistic approach. In other words, prayer, fasting, preaching the gospel, making disciples, seeing the power of the Spirit, that's non-negotiable. That drives everything, but that's not the only thing there is. In other words, if, if you don't teach parents how to be parents, or if you don't teach marriage, and if you don't teach other practical things, then you'll, you'll end up with a, a deep imbalance. And what we tend to do is it seems we either just get totally on a political bandwagon and join ourselves, say, as white evangelicals, we join ourselves primarily to the Republican Party, and then look to the, to the party to make the change and look to the president to make the change, and we abandon the other spiritual principles, or we're just all spiritual and not political. And what we have to do is be holistic. And then we have to, we have to believe, look, a, a lot of Christian businessmen, when they serve on church boards or ministry boards, they rock the boat a bit. Now, sometimes it's just because they're looking at things as a business, but many other times they rock the boat because they're like, you, you guys are so narrow in your thinking. There's a whole different way to do things. And, and somehow we just kind of, put, you know, the pastor is the one that does everything and brings about all the change. And, you know, the, the pastor should be shepherding the flock and equipping the flock and strengthening the flock. But that's only one 
agent that God has in this world to bring about change. The, so we, we and you know, the whole thing when then you start talking about the, the, the seven cultural mountains and so on and so forth. And yes, some people can use that in a wrong way. I'm not post-millennial, I'm a historic premillennial, so post-trib premillennial in my theology, but I don't divide over it, obviously. But there is the mentality the church has to take over everything and somehow you know, establish some type of Christian theocracy, and then Jesus returns. I run from that teaching, absolutely. But the idea that we should infiltrate every so-called cultural mountain and bring the influence of the gospel and be salt and light and, and bring righteousness and justice and truth into every area of society. Of course we should. Of course we should. We yeah. are the salt of the, the earth and the light of the world. And I've said for years that my greatest concern is not so much the presence of darkness, but the absence of light. You know, if, if suddenly you don't see me because you know, you, you're questioning me, what happened to the light? Darkness is just doing what it does. I, I don't can, obviously everyone needs the Lord and people that live in sin need to meet him and, and turn from their sin. But I'm not angry with the sinner sinning. I'm not, I'm not, when I get involved with gay activism and things, I get out, I just, I see broken people that need the Lord. So we've got to shine our light and we've got to do it in every area of society. And we've got no right blaming others. Of course, we're going to push back against others, but I don't blame them. Yeah. Uh, I blame the lack of light shining. When, when we, when we talk about, when I, when I talked about big ideas and, and you, you referred to, um, you know, the seven mountains of cultural influence and, and granted our founders believe they had to usher in the second coming by setting up his kingdom on the earth. And so they set up Harvard and Princeton and Yale. And as I said earlier, every eschatology comes with an asset and a liability. The asset for pre-trib was evangelism. The liability is we haven't built anything for the future. Our our children don't really have a hope as we're self-fulfilling prophecy uh, by the description I gave you. But, but here's, here's the one. Our founders, even though they felt as though they had to usher in the second coming, the, the asset was they built lasting institutions. The liability mm-hmm. was they became cold and heady. Mm. But they did sermons on immigration. They did sermons on transportation. They did sermons on, on eclipses. You read these sermons on the eastern seaboard during the, the, the first and second great awakening. These are brilliant men. And, and the entire Declaration of Independence was already preached from the pulpits on the eastern seaboard before it made to the pen of any of the writers. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll point this out that and I've traveled and I've spoken to over 15,000 pastors across the country. And I ask him this one question. And I won't ask you. <laughs> but this is a question I ask. I say, based on the, the, the pastoral epistle of Timothy, Paul commands Timothy to pray for kings and those in authority that we would live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence. And I say, based on that pastoral epistle, could you name for me your five city council members and your five school board members that you pray for by name and the issues they're dealing with in your community that would allow the citizens to live quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and reverence? You can hear a pin drop. It drops drops here with me, even though you didn't ask me. It drops here too. But I've stepped into the political world and I know they're looking for people because good government happens with good people and they're looking for Christians. They don't exist. They don't understand the political world. They don't understand that politics is the highest form of community. They don't understand that everything is operated 
in increments. It's either black or white. And if it doesn't work, I I don't want anything to do with it. That's not how politics works. It's a reasoning in community to come with an understanding, but they, they don't do that anymore. And we've, we've got to wake the body of Christ up that there are government structures that are awaiting men and women of education who understand the scriptures. What, what, is, what is the biblical understanding of immigration? It's assimilation. You, you're, you're a doctor of Near Eastern languages. You can take a look at the idea of the stranger and the foreigner in the Hebrew, and you would know that there are three categories, and one in particular is if you want to be a citizen, you assimilate to the law of that land. It doesn't mean open borders and you give him everything you want. It's all covered in the scriptures. Where do we get the three branches of government? Isaiah, the Lord is our king, our judge, and our lawgiver. Executive, legislative, and judicial. These were things that they thought through, but, but we have become all about truncating and making the gospel myopic, that it's the raising of your hand. God bless you, I see your hand. Don't forget to tithe on the way out. Where are the deep thinkers? Where's the application in a culture to, to, to contend for the school board on what kids are reading and give a logical explanation, understanding both sides of the argument because you've invested your time, treasures, and talents in the community in which you live? Yeah, you know, we, we got involved... With, a, with local school board issues because of certain curricula, uh, even though our, our own kids were not in school, you know, we got involved with going to the city council meetings and, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were pushing certain things, you know, transgender bathroom, different things like that. And, you know, one thing was with school board, another thing was city council. And, uh, you know, one, one uh, time we just told our folks, listen, we're all going to, uh, there were 10 speakers each had like two or three minutes at the beginning of the night. And people called in in advance so that all 10 speakers were, were godly believers that were going to present a position. And then I asked our, our congregation, I don't know pastor, but the, the congregation to help found, uh, I asked our folks to show up at the meeting. So we, we basically filled the hall and gave our presentations and then, uh, the last, you know, one of the gentlemen said, if you're in agreement with me, I'd like you to stand. Basically the whole place stands. There are a few people there that were very liberal, like what's going on here. And then when it was done with presentations, we all left it. It made a very strong statement, but we ended up losing the thing we were standing for because we didn't have people on the city council. Well, no, no, no. Oh, okay. So you got to do a little bit more. I know. I'll tell you why you lost because I've sat on that city council. And I've seen the chambers packed and I've seen them stand and I've seen them lose the exact same thing. And here's why you lose. There's 60 to 80 million evangelical Christians in the United States, depending on what research you look at. Half of them are not registered to vote. Mm -hmm. Of the half that are registered to vote, only half of those vote in a presidential election, 12% in a non-presidential election. There's one currency in politics that Christians don't understand. One, it's called winning elections. Yep. As a politician, granted, pastor, but as a politician, they do not vote. They just show up to complain, stand, and expect us to do their bidding when they've never walked a precinct, they've never hosted a coffee, they've never contributed to a campaign, and they don't know their elbow from their earlobe when it comes to politics because they are shallow. And until you can show that you can win an election and participate in the government that was a gift from God to us, you will... You will only come for your pet issues and you will never win and you will manage the decline of Western civilization. You want an awakening? 
You awaken when you open the law again and dust it off and the people rejoice. And they have a a system that governs them. And then a God who infuses it. This this is missing. We have to awaken to that. I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about dominionism. I'm not talking about theocracy. I'm talking about people participating with wisdom. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of um, Assemblywoman Shannon Grove. Yeah. And the idea that... State Senator. State Senator, sorry. Uh, Yeah. Shannon Grove, that... The idea that she's the, she's the only voice, not the only voice, but she, she had the, the privilege to explain to our governor what worship was. Yeah. And the idea that, that Newsom is, is like, what do you mean worship? And, and, and we, we see Newsom as this, you know, Dictatorial, satanic. satanic. Yeah. Yeah. We label, yeah. Right, but you have someone like, like Shannon Grove. Who prays for him every day. Prays for him, nope. yeah. is there and engaged in this arena. And she earned the right to be there by working hard. Exactly. Getting elected yeah. is tough. Yep. Yeah. Especially that position. Yep. And the yeah. Christians just berate her. Right. Yeah. This, the political realm is hard, Michael. And I, I, I'm excited because you're that bridge. You, you are educated. You do go deep. And I, I, I want to do this more with you. You know, the, I want to explore it with you. Yeah. I'm very happy to do it. You bet. I, I was going to say we're on 159 issue, uh, episodes. And the thing that's been the hugest blessing is the knowledge that we've gained from people like you, uh, Bob McEwen, Bill Federer, uh, Texas. everybody. And I went to your, I'm going to make a, a plug for what I saw that asked Dr. Brown. And I started going through all your videos. It kind of reminds me of a little bit like a Dennis Prager, because you take such a loving Epic. approach to debate. Epic. And what I think and what Rob's alluding to is that the need for knowledge and that's what I've gained during the last 160 episodes. And that's what I appreciated going to your website today and seeing that knowledge that all of us in the congregation need to gain. So I well, and, yeah, appreciate that. Thank and, you. and one of the, the, the most watched videos was, was it too, is it too late for America? Had a million views. You did it a year ago. And I actually pasted one of your quotes from it at the end. I don't know if we have it. Can we put it up? Oh, no, I'll, I'll read it. I have okay. it Yeah, you, you may. Yeah. It, it's really good. It's the real question for us is not, is it too late for America, but rather are we desperate enough for revival? And, and, so and that last sentence, I, I guess I would ask, if you were going to talk to our congregation that's grown and to the people that are watching, what's your definition of revival and how would you tell people to approach that? How does it look? Yeah. Uh, So revival is a season of unusual divine visitation. Uh, When I lived in the South, I was surprised to to hear it just used as a series of meetings. We're holding a revival next week. I tell people you can no more hold a revival than you can hold a hurricane. You can no more schedule a revival. You can schedule an earthquake. Revival is not something that man works up. Revival is something that God sends down. A season of unusual divine visitation. There's a deep consciousness of God presence of God in the church, it leads to deep repentance. You you become undone. You feel as if you're getting saved all over again because you realize that you've left your first love and become cold, carnal. Uh, The the stirring of the hearts of God's people, you just want to be with God and worship him. And, and, And the word comes with tremendous power and conviction. Now backsliders 
begin to come back and get generally transformed. Now the lost begin to hear and they begin to come in and get impacted. And then believers are living as believers in the society. There's also the reality of God's presence coming down in sovereign ways. Winky Prattney referred to it as a divine radiation zone. So it, 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 it has, if it happens in the community, it has an impact. It, it changes the way things are. Uh, and that's been documented historically in American history, the effect of, of awakenings in terms of cultural change and social change and, and, and ministries of compassion raised up to the poor and the needy. And, you know, the great prayer revival swept America in 1857-58. We know what happened in the next decade, all the upheaval in the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation, etc. Many believe that without revival coming first, we wouldn't have even gotten to some of those points. And if revival had swept in a deeper awakening way, there could have been greater repentance without the war. So we are in a situation now where the greatest issue is a compromised sleeping church, asleep in the light, and, and that the greatest need is for awakening in our own midst. And it's not, it's not separate from anything Rob's talking about uh, it, by any means. And again, we each have our role. We each have uh, our place. But unless the church awakens, unless there's repentance in our midst, look, you can talk about porn, and you have just as much problem with porn in the church as in the world. You can talk about, you know, so many other social, cultural problems. You think that's just in the world. It's in the church as well. I just saw a survey that said one third of evangelicals said that casual sex uh, outside of wedlock is, is not wrong. You think what in the world happened to us? So it's revival is, is, is a return to the gospel, a return to the foundations, a return to our first love. And out of that, the communities around us impacted. When, when there was an outpouring in Pensacola, Florida, and, and I got called into it about 11 months in, uh, the young people were tremendously impacted. And the, uh, the, the first year, God began moving powerfully in Father's Day, June of 95, in, in an Assembly of God Church in Pensacola, Florida. And that first September came, and there's this event called Sea with the Pole, where young people yeah. go to the flagpole yeah. in their school and they pray around the pole. Yeah. The first year, uh, 300 kids went. The youth pastor uh, checked out all the schools in his county, and, and he had people, people counting. There were a total of 300. The next year, there were 2,000. There was that great of an impact. I talked to the superintendent of schools in the county and asked him if the revival had an impact on the schools. He said, oh, yeah, I can tell you firsthand. I was principal of one of them. And then about one year into this, the local sheriff told the pastor, he said, you know, we've had a, a drop of 13 percent in juvenile crime in the county. Mm. He said, I think it's because of that revival. Now, critics had been challenging us, saying, well, if it's real, where are the effects? So we said, well, this is what we heard from the sheriff. So then they attacked us. How dare you take credit? Let's <laughs> talk what the sheriff said. But this is what should happen. There should be a moral effect on the community or on the people that are impacted. James Edmund Orr, the revival scholar, said the only proof of the new birth is the new life. So people really start to live this out. And uh, when, when Charles Finney was involved in, in powerful meetings in 1829 and 1830 in Rochester, and he particularly went after judges and lawyers and influential business people and said, you have to make a difference. Rochester became part of the, the, uh, the so-called Underground Railroad to get slaves smuggled uh, out of America safely. Uh, Rochester for decades thereafter, for actually well over a hundred, 
50 years after, led the nation in a number of, of philanthropic endeavors and other things like that. And when a researcher in Reader's Digest was trying to figure out why Rochester was known as America's friendliest, kindest city, he went back. His Reader's Digest in the 90s went back to Finney's meetings in 1829, 1830. said that changed the city. But mm -hmm. Finney intentionally went after social cultural issues and people of influence, and it made a difference. Yeah. That's a fruit, a lasting fruit of revival. Hmm. Let's... We, we typically end at eight and you're on the East Coast and you're, bless your heart, you've been endeavoring with us. Michael, I, I want to do this some more because you, I, with, with your insight and, and your, your studies, I, I want you to help navigate us through this because it's, it's a great blessing. And then obviously when we meet again, and I, I'd like to do it sooner than later, I know we've got four or five guests scheduled, but I was thinking maybe a week out or a week and a half out. Let's sit down and do it again if you have time. I would be so blessed because I know folks are loving it tonight. We didn't even get a chance for questions, and I know there's a ton of them. Yeah. Would you be open to that? I'm putting you on the spot. What are you going to say no? <laughs> oh, no, of, no, of course. Of course I'd be open. Uh, listen, obviously we're all busy, but uh, the kind of conversation we can have and the burden that you've carried and what you're living out now, by all means, happy to join in. And with my travel schedule reduced these days, uh, normally weekends, you know, three weekends at a month or so, I'd, I'd, I'd be away. But now Sunday nights, I'm home more. Okay. So, yeah, uh, happy to do it. And, yeah, it's ideal if you can give me more than a couple hours notice. I had to actually shaved and stuff because I wasn't traveling this weekend. I just got a little shaggy here, so I shaved and got ready. But, yeah, otherwise... By all means, with joy, and then if we take live questions, whatever, however I can be of help, and if we want to have something where we have a different perspective and try to sharpen each other on it or sure. whatever, you, you set the agenda, and, and I'll participate. You bless mm. me. You're mm. awesome. Well, okay, then, then it, it's late for him. We'll, we'll sign you off, but I, I want to say thank you, and I, I am, I'm very scheduled. I'm just very... Um, uh, spontaneous. <laughs> and so I can spontaneously. Right, so I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah. A quick story. And by the way, folks, visit the website, askdrbrown.org, mm -hmm. askdrbrown.org. Check out all the articles, videos there. Please, people, then, this yeah. is awesome. Yeah, connect with yeah. us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. So askdrbrown.org. All right, quick story. One of my friends who's, oh, I guess late 60s now. So decades ago, uh, he went to, to Wheaton. And when, when he was at Wheaton College, there was one professor who scheduled every hour of every day. So he had his daily routine. And every if, if there was an hour he wasn't meeting the students or doing this, that every hour was scheduled. He came into class one day tremendously excited. It so happened that this week he had an hour free on a schedule. Okay. So he decided to do something completely spontaneous. And he loved it so much that from there on, he was going to schedule one hour a week for spontaneity. <laughs> That's awesome. That's so schedule. Great. Schedule. Yeah, yeah schedule. Spontaneity. <laughs> it must All have right. Been. God bless, guys. <laughs> Thanks. Bless Thank you. you. Thanks, Bye. Michael. Thanks. I'll see you. What a sweetheart. Oh, so awesome. man. And, you know, uh, charismatic, brilliant, highly educated, and I, I, we didn't get a chance, and you can't do that in an hour. Yeah. But he's gonna he's gonna help articulate, navigate at least some of the questions I have. And he he didn't seem turned off. He was moved at least oh, yeah. to help us navigate these areas. And I, I don't have his education. Yeah. Um, he he possesses this amazing ability to make me want 
he makes me want to be wrong so I can learn. If that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like I, I want I want him to, to teach me where where I don't understand things. Well, it was it was hey. two hours, two and a half hours ago. Rob schedules it. I'm going. Who's he? I go to his, his oh, yeah. website, start awesome. watching his videos, and I come I back at 6:30, and I go, Oh my gosh, this guy's a rock star in knowledge, and you guys would enjoy going to his website. AskDrBrown.com. Yeah, and uh, .org actually. Excuse me. But uh, you know. I've been told, and Rob's been told, Mike has been told, is people are tuning in and using it as their news hour a lot of times, as their informational source. So I hope we can continue down that path of I, gaining that, you know, that what we've done. I have to tell you that Dutch knows that it's 8 o'clock past his bedtime. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I want to go to sleep. Yeah. This dog goes to bed <laughs> right on, at on 9. On, on, on schedule. He's like telling me I'm done now. <laughs> All right, uh, Micah, why don't you close us in prayer and, and close with the reading of Numbers. Amen. Father, thank you for Dr. Michael Brown and yes, the, the ability that you've given us for civil discourse and, and understanding points of view and even in in perceived divergence, Lord, knowing that we're all seeking the same thing, Lord. And, and thank you for making that so clear tonight. Thank you for, um, for giving us the ability to strive for unity, God, under you. Lord, thank you for, for this night. Thank you for this whole day, Lord. What a blessing today was, yes, Lord. Lord. And all the people that came forward for healing, Lord, whether it's physical or spiritual or mental, Lord, we, we, we pray over everyone uh, again now, and we continue to pray, Lord, would you, would you heal our, our people, our congregation, yes, our sick, Lord, our hurting, Lord, um, God, the broken families, the broken marriages, the, uh, the struggling relationships, Lord, would you, would you just put your, put your healing touch, Lord, yes. on them, and God, we, we submit uh, tomorrow night to you, Lord, we look forward to, to all of the other guests that you have lined up for us, and I pray that you continue to to give uh, Pastor Rob energy, Lord, and, and our, our staff energy, Lord, as we continue to, to, to just look to, to seek you more and more, Lord. And, and we're, not, we're not tired of the work, but getting tired in the work, Lord, would you just give us energy, Lord? Yes, Lord. And we love you and praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, you, you, worship was outstanding. And talk about the, the stringed instruments. What a neat oh, addition. Gosh. Such yeah. a, a blessing. Yeah. All right, let's bless everybody at home. Folks, thank you for joining us. And Micah, bless them, will you? Number 624 through 26, we sang this this morning. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow night. And then Tuesday, uh, we're allowing a live audience if you want to join us. Uh, Bishop Broderick Huggins and Officer Brandon Tatum. It'll be a great night. God bless you. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow night. Bye.